Hello everyone, you're listening to The Lit Pickers, a podcast on books and reading in which my friend Supriya Nair and I, Dipanjana Pal, talk about, um, well, books and reading. Sometimes. All the time. Kind of. Anyway. In the year of our Lord, 2021, we are one and a half years into a pandemic that has made the trip from the bedroom to the living room my idea of a holiday. Mm. Um, And in this time, I have found myself not just dreaming of holidays, but going to just the most fantastical places ever. Because uh, because I can only get to my dining table most of the time. So if that's the physical journey that is going to be allowed to me, thanks to you, pandemic and Delta variants and other such wonderful things, I figure I might as well go on a flight of fantasy, right, in my head. And that was what I was thinking of when I got my tattoo in the very brief period that this this pandemic sort of, you know, allowed us to step out for a moment. The thing that I... When you, when you could step out to get a tattoo without yeah. the risk of your lungs shrinking to the size of a pinhole. Indeed, indeed. It was a good time. It was a good few hours. But it sort of made me think about the kind of places in books that I would like to travel to. Are there places that you've been thinking about? Literary invention places? As the pandemic has gone on... I find that my ability to dream about escape has narrowed. Mm. And I think that's natural, right? When you're kind of confined to a little space, it works on your imagination as much as it works on your body. So in the year of our Lord 2021, but who is our Lord? I would say for me, in the year of our Lord would be Mary Brennan, who created the Lady Trent series Mm. and... Lady Isabella Trent, renowned dragon naturalist. Thank you very much. (laughs) Sounds amazing. Oh, my God. It is one of the most enjoyable series ever. She is one of the best literary characters that I have ever come across, set in a Victorian, a Victorian age. I love Um, it. (laughs) So she's a renowned dragon naturalist. Mm -hmm. She is from an island that seems to be inspired by England, And she travels around the world as part of her dragon research. Mm -hmm. It's a feminist adventure fantasy. I think my favorite book is probably the one that's set in the content of Eriga, which is modeled on Africa. And we're so used to seeing exoticized versions of Victorian Africa, you know, like this land of... Yes, in fact, Natives so much. In fact, so much escapist, quote unquote, literature yeah, yeah. was based on those extremely Orientalist Richard Burton type fantasies. Exactly, and this sort of really rewrites that. So it is an exotic space in the sense that you know there are jungles and there are tribes that these you know English type people don't understand, but it's not written with that Orientalist perspective. Hmm. It's beautifully done. So tell me again, she's like a dragon taxonomist. She goes to places and not taxonomist. She's a naturalist. She right. studies living dragons, right? Because living dragons exist in this world, hmm. and this whole and there's a hugely sort of biological part to it because you know she's describing how the bones are like birds and how the physical thing works as well. They're discovering. She's part of this pioneering study to understand what dragons are like. And they think dragons are not real and then they realize that dragons do exist. It's just 
fascinating. Mm. Five books, highly recommended. I tore through them last year. I discovered them actually in March 2020. They've mm. been written years ago, but I discovered them last year. Mm. And uh, and they were truly some of the most beautiful, beautiful journeys that I have been on through the pages of a book. That sounds fascinating. Are there anything in spirit like... Naomi Novik's Temeraire no. series? No, no, right. not really. Which for those who haven't read the books are about like the Napoleonic Wars, but mm. prosecuted with dragons on either side. It's On all sides. Rather. Yes. So I find generally Naomi Novik's stuff quite fun to read, mm. but very clearly trying to make a point, you mm. know, like giving a lesson. Yeah, they're, they're moralizing. Yeah, they are very moralizing. Yeah. And that's fine if that's... She's clearly intending to give you that moral mm. lecture, which is all very well. But I kind of like my fiction to have the messaging a little more embedded. Mm. So in the Lady Trent series, there's a lot being talked about race, about class, about gender, about social hierarchies of different kinds. But the story is preeminent. Mm. And... It's in the process of the story that when you think back upon it, then you realize that there are all these other things that she's done as well. But at the heart of it is an academic researcher out on an adventure. It's just so much fun. Yeah, what could be better? It occurs to me that dwelling in fantasy is something that we have increasingly taken refuge in in the years even before the pandemic, mm. right? Which is why uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I guess, is kind of the most dominant imaginative exercise of our time. Mm. Again, it occurred to me while we were talking about this subject that a lot of people would jump straight to uh, Hogwarts mm. when talking about, you know, fantasies that they'd rather dwell in. And while that's not true for me or for you, interested listeners may <laughs> may hark back to the Lit Pickers archives where we had a salty little episode on Harry Potter tucked away somewhere. But of course, Rowling was writing to create that cozy school fantasy, you know, where you could like sit at a table and anything you wanted to eat would appear. And sort of anything stuff like that. you needed and things like the Marauder's Map, you know, that you'd be able to keep an eye on everyone in school without leaving your Ah, right. The surveillance state as invented by like young goons. <laughs> yeah, by teenage boys. I'm loving it. Well, that's basically what the surveillance state is even in a larger scale. That is scale. true. It prefigured Mark Zuckerberg. Um, Before there was Facebook, there Before was Moroder's map. That's right. Yeah. Uh -huh. But Marvel also reimagined Asgard, right? Fictional land of the gods in Norse mythology. Mm. And if you are a myth junkie, then you will know that Asgard doesn't sound much like the Asgard that they've imagined, you know, like mm. the Asgard that they've imagined in Marvel is a very sort of... Uh, it's like a 1970s sort of... Yeah, it's like 1970s New York. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 19, And it's a very 1970s fantasy with those gilded towers and so on and so forth. Mm. And of course, hell underneath it, right? Which is what happens yeah, in, yeah. when, when Hela turns Niflheim's, up. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And in the Norse mythology, it's not so much under as much as concurrent worlds, right? They're mm. parallel worlds that are scattered across the universal tree of Yggdrasil. Mm. So it's not necessarily under, but it's a parallel world. But uh, not a place that you want to escape to necessarily. So here's the thing, right? Places don't have to be pretty for you to want to escape to them. And I'm thinking at this point of Discworld and the city of Ankh-Mor Park in Discworld mm. uh, by Terry Pratchett, which is a pretty filthy city as cities go. But right. I would very happily 
you know, escape to it. Feels like you could survive there. Easily. Maybe even thrive. Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, it uh, Ankh-Morpork is about like, it's it's like a fantasy of migrating there rather than a fantasy of perhaps if I had to escaping go, for a quick If visit. I had to go on a holiday or escape to a fantasy place where I'd have to quarantine for 14 days before I'd be able to actually step out, I think Ankh-Morpork might actually be pretty good. You know, <laughs> this world in general, I just find... I mean, it's just such a delightfully written mm. universe, right? Because it's not a world, it's really a universe that operates on its own physics. You know, magic has its own color. Reality is very different from how we understand it on Earth. The world is a flat disk standing on the backs of four large elephants who are standing on a gigantic turtle. Makes complete sense, surely, you know. But it's just so much fun. All of these grumpy wizards and, you know, eager beaver sort of heroes who are cut down to shape and then yet sort of celebrated all at the same time. Mm. Um, and the moral core, I guess, of Terry Pratchett's worlds always feel like they're very strongly devised. Mm, which is all, Yeah, so. which is also true of Tolkien. It's just that his morality is, uh, I mean, it's different from Pratchett's. Would you pick Middle-earth as an escapist fantasy? No, not at all. Middle-earth signifies danger and despair and destruction. And a lack of plumbing. (laughs) As much as anything else. I think you might have had plumbing in like the old kingdoms that were eventually destroyed because the people who built them were too arrogant, Mm. which is a running theme in Tolkien. Mm. (laughs) You know, like a trench is good enough for you. (laughs) Like it was good enough for him in the Great War. I can't see myself enjoying Middle Earth. And that's not just because of like the racial barriers. Uh, the racial you, barriers yeah. also. Racial barriers are also stuff that we like jump through yeah. all the time as yeah. readers, right? And I think our resilience as readers has allowed us to do that for generations across, well, across races. Like a place where I feel like I'd love to be a spectator, mm. although it seems like a very dangerous place to actually try and live, is uh, the world of the Condor heroes. which is now accessible to us because of new translations. I've always loved, you know, the particular kind of like wuxia fantasy that was was preserved for us in the great Hong Kong cinema Mm -hmm. that ran from like the 60s to the 90s and that is now going to be unrecognizable because Xi Jinping has taken over Hong Kong. Everything from, you know, the the food to the clothes to the idea of like of traveling through these vast landscapes. And this is one of the things that modern Chinese fantasy actually did. Right. If, mm-hmm. And even if you haven't read it, those of you who have seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon kind of know what the project is about. It's about knitting all these disparate landscapes mm. of this subcontinent together. Sounds familiar? Mm, strange. Mm. There's also, I mean, on the film front, similar territory is Zhang Yimou's uh, Hero, which is one of the most beautifully shot films. One of the most gift films ever. I mean, the things he does with curtains. Actually, I think the Chinese have a thing for curtains. They film curtains so beautifully. Anyway, but yeah. You realize, right, when you watch like East Asian drama that this, unlike drama oriented in the West, this is a place where they had no problem finding silk. (laughs) (laughs) Like it was not a big deal. So immediately the problem of who gets to wear like, you know, kind of flowy clothes or who gets to sword fight with curtains is solved. Yeah. Because that's, <laughs> you, you, you don't lack for this stuff. <laughs> so any other mythical worlds that you can think of that you might want to escape to? Well, as a child, I read all these incredibly, you know, didactic books about like plucky little girls in 
cold climates and <laughs> while I don't necessarily feel like I want to go to any of those places one of the things that occurs to me is that if you if you read Anne of Green Gables as a child hmm. you would never know as a child in a hot country hmm. you would never know that Canada was actually like miserably cold that is so true yeah you know elm montgomery had that gift of writing about landscapes incredibly poetically yeah you know all of montgomery's stories were set on this small island off the eastern coast of canada called prince edward island and uh, she it was very much her project to make this small place that was the middle of nowhere mm. seem like fairyland and she did that she she did, uh, one of her characters does even say you know to like a second person who's like why do you want to go home for the holidays it's like <laughs> it's going to be so boring and she says well you know i have love there and love is like the transformative po- is like the transforming ingredient that makes a plain place beautiful and uh, which so, i think is the so essence true. of fantasy absolutely and it's so true what you're saying i think like when I was a child I would read even as an adult I think like I would read these landscapes and just basically put the temperature around me mm. into that landscape so it's like oh yes mountains snow and etc etc and 31 degrees celsius right. thank you very and much and me in bermudas <laughs> I do because I grew up in you know in a humid tropical city I do find mountains mysterious and fascinating. One of the problems about reading travel literature about for example the Himalayas is that some of the most exciting adventurous exploratory literature about it was of course all written by orientalists mm. for whom these places were kind of bereft of of human value. Mm. But um you know a book that really transported me when I read it was uh, Patrick French's Young Husband which is uh. exactly about you know exactly about this kind of like this British officer who goes off to across the Himalayas to yeah. uh, to Tibet but at the distance and because Patrick is like an amazing writer and also mm-hmm. and also he, because he's a modern scholar he does that he imbues the landscape with that human value. Yeah. The Himalayas remind me of the time that i was flying back from bhutan to india hmm. and i was reading pankaj mishra's book on the buddha called hmm. an end to suffering which is as much a memoir of pankaj's early years as a writer when hmm. he kind of gives up the city hmm. or cities and heads off to the himalayas where he finds someone who gives him a house where on a clear day you can see all the way to tibet and that is like so i mean there's just something about that kind of fantasy right it makes you like homesick for a place you've never been mm. and it's not fantasy at all it's just it's or rather it, but it is escape it's a vanished reality mm. you know mm. uh, and in fact like when you were talking about that i was thinking that one of the places that has actually been in many ways i think immortalized through words is the city of delhi the old city of delhi the mughal pre-british india mm. delhi shahjahanabad Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it's been written off so beautifully by so many people. I think there's a lot more I don't uh, read Hindi fluently enough. Well, I read Hindi fluently enough, but I don't uh, end up having the patience to go through a whole Hindi novel and I can't read Urdu. So that's out, but but I remember reading The Mirror of Beauty by Shamsur Rahman Farooqi, mm. which is set in that 19th century Delhi mm. and is one of the most exquisite novels I have ever read it is very much about a physical beauty in the character of the protagonist wazir khanam but it's not just this woman's beauty it's the city it's the culture the he spends five pages describing 
an outfit mm. and I am there for it, you know, because it's I can practically feel that fabric and that embroidery on my fingertips as I just rest it on the page and I read. Mm. It was just so evocative. And yeah. I mean, that was his monument to the vanished past, right? Yeah. Like he wrote it because he wanted to preserve that bygone culture, not as history, but as memory. Yeah. You know, yeah. even though it was destroyed, raised to the ground by the British and then frittered away. Mm. At least people like you and I, who had no connection to it whatsoever and were born centuries afterwards, would feel like this was a time and a place that we remembered rather than a time and a place that we read about. Read, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Not, I mean, that's you have to be a writer like him to be, to be is, able to do that. Yeah. And you have to dedicate a lifetime to, to writing about it, which is what which, he did. Which is exactly what he did. Yeah. And, and he wrote it twice. He wrote it in Urdu and he translated it into English. And the translation, I've been told from people who have read the Urdu original, it's not a translation. I mean, no translation is a direct translation, Indeed. obviously. But this is... This is even more imaginative than your average translation because apparently he's, you know, changed a lot of things in the process of retelling because he felt the language mm. just needed it to go differently, which I think it's the kind of thing that you can only do when you are the writer of the original text, <laughs> yeah. you know. what And what a scholar. Yeah. Right? Amazing. It's truly. I mean, he is a legend and it is sad that, you know, he... Not enough people sort of hold him up as a legend, I think. But Not if, enough people outside the Urdu world. Outside sure. the Urdu world, That's for right. sure. Yeah. There's another novel that came out very recently by Raza Mir called Murder the Mushera, hmm. which is set in just the period before the British are going to devastate Delhi hmm. because of the rebel uprising, as they called it, which we know as the First War of Independence or the Sepoy Mutiny. Depending on where you are, you will have learnt about it <laughs> with a different name. So Murder at the Mushera is, on the face of it, a murder mystery in which the detective is Ghalib. Hmm. And it is super fun. <laughs> uh, but aside from the fun of a poet being a detective, which is very, very enjoyable, it's also... Razami tries to recreate that Delhi. Hmm. You know, the neighborhoods, the streets, the smells, the food, the culture. Hmm. It's not anywhere close to as accomplished as Mirror of Beauty, but it is certainly very evocative. Very evocative. And, you know, it gets little things like having the courtesan's quota just, you know, a little away from the mosque and the mosque being like, I don't know if we're good for this. And yet that courtesan is playing this incredibly important role in the social fabric of that time in a way that you don't entirely anticipate. In fact, that courtesan's uh, story, it's a, it's a tiny subplot, actually, in Murder at the Moshera, but I loved it. Mm. I absolutely loved it. Like, there's a film there, you know? <laughs> oh, I hope so. I hope there is a film there, then. I would I... love to watch a series that had, like, Ghalib solving yeah. murder mysteries. I mean, Razami needs Who to write wouldn't? a couple more books like that. But, you know, maybe prequels to Murder at the Mushaira, given where it is in the time. Ah. But, yeah, I hope he does. And here's the thing. I mean, we keep saying, I know I keep saying this, right, that I can imagine it as a film. But I don't actually want to see the film in most cases. What <laughs> I mean is that I can see it. In your I hand. can close my eyes and I can see it. Mm. Now, sometimes when someone does realize 
what is contained in pages beautifully, then you're saving me the trouble of imagining it. Mm. Because it is a lot of work to actually imagine. So Middle Earth is a good example. I was just thinking about that. Whitened the crap out of the elven kingdom. But let's be fair, I don't think Tolkien was thinking mixed race elves anyway. It's, I mean, it was one of those, the racial component is one of those things where like it is, you know, you take something that is... That is already the way it is and you entrench it further. Yeah. But Jackson had that visual imagination that exceeded something that a lot of fans had. I mean, just the way he imagined Rivendell, uh, Mm. drawing upon the existing Tolkien art, these fluttering autumnal leaves, which, by the way, they had to individually pick up each one at the end of their shooting because it was done in a national park in uh, New Zealand. The tree, uh, Galadriel's tree, the name of which I have forgotten. Malorn. There we go. Mm. All of these things were just beautifully realized. So sometimes it works well, but I don't need someone to do it. When the writer has written it, as well as people like Faruqi have in books like The Mirror of Beauty, or even Razamir has done in Murder of the Mushera, I don't actually need someone to recreate it for me. If they do, it'd be lovely, but I hope they do a good job because there's nothing more disappointing than doing a bad job. Yeah, I mean, slightly on a slight tangent from what you said, what I don't need is people juicing the pleasure out of an existing IP, which is how mm. filmmakers now think of this stuff. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, I want to see what a, what a filmmaker who is an artist in their own right, thinks when they read a book. Take one example, right? Martin Scorsese sets himself the challenge mm. of like visualizing a book every time he adapts one. Mm-hmm. So in fact, the comparison to be made if you are watching a movie like The Age of Innocence is not, is Martin Scorsese as good as Edith Wharton? I mean, no, I, who cares about that, you know? Is, is, is this a good Martin Scorsese movie yeah. is the question to ask. Because... Whatever else you may think of him, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Another book that when I read, I thought that this somebody must be making a movie of this and it has not been made is this book called Night in Shanghai. Have you read it? No. Okay, Night in Shanghai by this uh, author named Nicole Monez is set in just before the Japanese invasion of Shanghai. Hmm. And did you know that there were black jazz bands who were contracted by the Chinese to come and perform in Shanghai? I feel like Naresh Fernandez would has, be the only other person who would know this. <laughs> has mentioned this. Uh, so this happened. So Nicole Monez's story is set in this Shanghai and her key protagonist is this classically trained black pianist hmm. who comes, he doesn't know much about jazz, but he is a trained pianist and he basically wants to leave the inequalities of his America. And so he comes to China, hmm. to Shanghai, particularly Shanghai because of all the freedom right, that it's it sort of embodies right. to make a new beginning. Hmm. And of course, it's not a good time to be there, given the Japanese are going to show up. But the music is just written about... There's a lot about jazz music. There's a lot about the bars and these mahjong dens and ballrooms. And it is so beautifully written. It took me there. Like, it's it's truly a transporting novel. And this whole idea of Americans coming to China, what we today know as China, Mm. uh, to leave behind their past and, you know, try and do something new is something that Nicole Monez has done at least in two books, like Mm. this one and another book called Lost in Translation, not related to the Sofia Coppola film. Mm. Which incidentally is also about Americans going to the Orient. To the (laughs) Orient, yeah. And trying to forget themselves and not really being able to. Mm. Uh, But yeah, so Night in Shanghai, though, it's like 
It's a vintage era. It's incredibly descriptive and uh, heartbreaking. That I should, yeah. If anybody Refrain was hoping for spoilers. a happy ending, don't read that book. Oh. But I mean, happy endings are not necessarily all that make a book beautiful. So that's true. Look, to be honest, neither you nor I want to go back to the past. No, no. matter where, <laughs> no matter where it is or uh, what one status would be. The past cannot compare with the present that we know, but there is a form of escape that's possible in great historical writing. Mm. And, you know, from Nicole Monet's writing about Shanghai to Raymond Chandler actually recreating uh, Los Angeles in the Hollywood Hills in a way that exceeds reality. The sexiness Um, of noir is uh, (laughs) is Chandler, basically. Yeah, it says something about the power of literature and, you know, even confined to our bedrooms and going perambulating from kitchen to bed to desk as we have been doing for the last 18 months hasn't quite been able to extinguish our joy in that amazing well said well said (laughs) madam and on that happy note we will perambulate to the other side of this room and have lunch and we will see you soon goodbye for now The Lit Pickers is a Made in India production. Don't forget to rate and review and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell everyone you know about the show. Share it on social media, tell your friends and family, scream about it on your rooftop. It really helps get the word out. Oh, and use the hashtag LitPickers. Follow Supran the Panjana on Twitter or Instagram. You can also find all of the books they've mentioned or recommended in an online resource via a link in our episode description. Thanks and keep listening.